Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. So with me right now, I have a man who was in the day-to-day operations of Future Studios. Yes, that Future Studios, former recording studios of Mr. Yep, Yep, it's Teddy, ready with the one-two checker, New Jack Swing himself, Teddy Riley. And he just recently self-published a book, which is a great read. It's entitled Don't Leave, Eight Years of Working with Teddy Riley, Black Street, and Future Recording Studio. Hails from Portsmouth, Virginia, so shout out to everybody in the 757 Hampton Roads, Norfolk, Hampton, Portsmouth, Newport News, Chesapeake, Williamsburg, surrounding areas. We're going to get into all that and more with the one and only Mr. Tony Brown. Tony, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Thank you for having me, young brother. Thank you for having me. You got all the seven cities in there, too, didn't you? (laughs) <laughs> yes, sir. I got, I got to represent. Like I said, I got to claim the 757 because my dad used to live in Newport News right off of Ashton Green Boulevard, like going towards Fort Eustis off 64. And he was stationed in Fort Eustis. So I have vivid memories of spending my summers as a kid in uh, Newport News, Virginia and in and around Hampton Roads. Yeah, shout out Newport News. They're, they're represented in the book as well. Mm-hmm. AKA bad news, and you know, all bad the time news. that came out of bad news, Michael Vick, uh, Mike Tomlin. We can go down the list of all the greats that right. came out of the 757. Right. So it's a pleasure right. to have you on. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So, thank you, thank you. Portsmouth, Virginia. How did you end up in this crazy business that we call the music industry? Uh, it was by happenstance, man. I, I, I always had a love for music just naturally growing up around music and listening to the radio, being a DJ in my young years in high school, hanging around the older dudes, being a DJ. But how I actually got into the the music business was um, I was a football player and I was playing football in Europe as um, while I was stationed as a soldier. And my my team had won the the championship that year, which is like the equivalent to the Super Bowl. So we were out in a, a nightclub just partying and they were playing all of this techno music. And then all of a sudden they, play, they played a song that I know, Rapper, Rapper's Delight. And I went and grabbed the, the microphone from the DJ booth and just rapped the whole song. You know, Young Me, Champagne Bottle in one hand, microphone in the other hand, just rapping the song. I knew all the lyrics to it. I used to play it as a DJ. So I went back to my table and this Italian guy just walked up to me out of nowhere and just like dropped the deal on me. You wanna, you wanna make a record? I was like, hell yeah, let's make a record. <laughs> That easy. And it's, it's amazing because I always know people that's like, they try their whole life to get a recording contract. They, they, they do anything to get a record deal. But um, it's like, I guess being in the right place at the right time, or I don't know what you would call it, but it just dropped on me. It's like nothing I never expected. Mm, now you mentioned Rapper's Delight being played. Now, me being from the South myself, from North Carolina, hip hop, came a little bit slow in the South because this was pre-internet and the only way you really got real authentic hip hop was if your relatives from up North or somebody you knew from up North came down South, brought their mixtapes with them and then the folks down South would dub them and sell them for a high markup. So what was that like seeing those early hip hop records migrate its way South and how Virginia pre everything else that came in the nineties and two thousands were able to add their own flavor to hip hop in its infancy. Oh, I remember the first hip hop song I heard 
was was rappers like hip hop, hip, and it was like the talk of the school. The next day, everybody went to school and we, we were mesmerized by by what we had heard on the radio. We had a station in in Hampton Roads, Virginia, called WRAP, and um, back then stations didn't play a lot of rap music. They even even the songs they recorded. Back then, you would have an R&B version, and you would have a, a version with a rap break on it. But certain stations wouldn't play the rap version at all. But certain stations would play the rap version. So we got that, uh, Daddy Jack Combs and DJs like Chester Benton, who um, introduced us early to hip hop. And um, like you said, going up north and coming back, I had a chance to experience new music up there. Like you said, bringing back mixtapes and bringing back new records over the summer. You go and visit a relative up north and come back. And you got like new stuff they never heard of and everybody, you could put people on to new stuff. So that's how I traveled back then, you're right. Now was also early hip hop getting played in and around outside of the Hampton Roads, like Richmond, Suffolk, pretty much those areas in and around Central Virginia? Well, you know, as a, as a, um, as a young teenager, I was with a troop of DJs called the Postal All-Stars and we used to actually do a lot of parties and we never, we never really migrated past the Richmond area. We did like from maybe like Williamsburg down. We did Richmond on occasion, but mostly Hampton Roads and North Carolina areas, Elizabeth City, that area. And um, we would take the music with us. It's like the songs that were big then were like Planet Patrol, um, Planet Rock, uh, Soul Sonic Force, those those type of um, hip hop, disco um marriages were, were big back then. And then you had like, um, like late, excuse me, early eighties, you had artists like Run DMC and the, the individual rappers start to emerge um, as opposed to like the, the entourage rappers. Mm, and like I said, I'm originally from North Carolina, the town where I'm from, it's about 15 minutes from the Virginia border, Emporia, Virginia to be exact. So got a chance to hear a lot of music blasting out of Petersburg and Richmond since Richmond is only an hour 30 minute drive. And then also with DC not being that far of a drive at all, I'm sure Go-Go had to have some type of influence in the Tidewater area during those early years. Well, you know, the thing, I, I actually lived in Richmond for a while and the thing that I, I I remember about music in Richmond is that it wasn't so much hip hop in that area. In that era when I lived in Richmond, it was more um, R&B, but it was also hands-on musicians. Like you actually picked up an instrument and learned how to play an instrument. You learn how to play something. So that was another introduction into music. You Kids joined band, kids joined orchestra, they joined marching band. And you, know, you actually had hands-on musical experience through your schools. Mm -hmm. Back when- more so back then than today. Yeah, back when the arts were really good. And that was pretty much the main thing where if you weren't in sports, you were going to be in band. It was the thing to do. Kept you out of you trouble. Do something out of school, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And look at all the countless, yeah, and look at the countless musicians that got their start playing in high school bands. Right. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I actually, the first instrument that I, I played, the first instrument that I played was a flute. My cousin Michael was in a marching band, the biggest marching band in Portsmouth, Assey Norcom Marching Band. They're like the mecca of marching bands. And he passed down a flute to me. And I was in Richmond playing the flute, but I used to get teased and I was like, you're playing a sissy instrument. So after beating somebody up with the flute, I switched to the trumpet. So it was like, I, I, I migrated from trumpet and then to drums. So it was like hands-on learning experience 
and before before getting a chance to before the full emergence of hip hop, before be, becoming fully emerged in hip hop, I had a lot of hands on musical experience. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier those early parties in Portsmouth. Now, did the other cities in the Tidewater area mix at those parties like Newport News, Virginia Beach, Williamsburg, oh, yeah. Yeah. Chesapeake, or was it just strictly, this is Portsmouth, but if you're from not from Portsmouth, you better be ready to throw them hands. No, 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 it wasn't like that. We used to have battles of the DJs back then. It wasn't like rap battles, it was DJ battles back then. And it wasn't DJ battle like who could cut the most our DJ battles back then consisted of who had the loudest sound system and who had the best collection of records. You did who could who could pull the crowd away from the other DJ. So we had DJs in neighboring cities like Chesapeake had the controller and Bobby Roscoe in Norfolk. They had big bad bass. They had different uh, DJs in different cities, and they would bring their crowd and we would bring our crowd. But for the most part, it would always be peaceful, just peaceful, fun loving events. Right, be a lot of drama. Mm, and the one good thing about the Tidewater area is that you have a lot of colleges in the area as well. You have Women Mary, ODU, yeah. Norfolk State, yeah. Hampton University. So how being around those schools, then of course with Hampton and Norfolk State having their reputations in the HBCU circle, how did that enhance your ability to say, hmm, I know what records work on a college campus and I could translate that into my future career? Um. That's a good question. It, it was just your ear and what you feel. You know, it was just like an upbringing, it's like seasoning. I don't know how to really explain it, but certain music, music evokes emotions, right? So certain music makes you feel a certain type of way. And you want to, if you're partying, you're in a club and you're trying to get people to dance, you want to play the feel good music, the music that, with the syncopation that makes you start moving. And, you know, that's, that evokes the emotion and that's, that's how you get the crowd started. Right. And with hip hop being in its infancy and the scarcity of records early on, there was a delegate line where DJs play your hip hop records, but play R&B, which at that period, they called that era the boogie era, era, like that era with D-Train, Kashif, anything that came out of Solar, Leon Silvers, it kind of had that disco feel but it was also innovative because they were using early forms of technology with synthesizers and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. It was like Leon Silvers, shout out to Leon Silvers. That's one of my, my buddies in the, the mentioned in the book, but he's a he's an early pioneer in like translating, um, I guess you would say funk into R&B into what became hip hop. He got some songs that like, if you listen to him today, you'll be like, wow, he's ahead of his time because the, the bass lines and the grooves from those songs will still make you you know, evoke that emotion in you today. Mm, his records have been sampled countless times from Will Smith, Camp Lowe, the list goes on and on. Now, mm. over in Europe, you got your deal and having success over there, and it's time to come back to the States. Was it immediately once you came back stateside that you kind of got wind about Teddy setting up shop in Virginia Beach? No, when I came back to the to the United States, it was reluctantly. I had, I had, um, I had my deal in Europe, and I was doing, I was doing well. I was making most of my money off of touring, but I, I found out about uh, money that was owed to me from publishing that I wasn't receiving. So um, at that point, I, I felt like I didn't want to get pimped by the labels no more. I wanted to learn how to be a pimp, so I, I went, I went to work for the same label that I was signed to 
and learned a lot of behind the scenes. I learned how to read contracts. I could write a contract from a blank piece of paper to the signature line. So um, I learned everything there was about the music business because I don't want what happened to me to ever, and those emotions that I experienced to ever come across me again. And when I came back to the States, I actually worked with, um, with um, when I came out to the States, I actually started like a production company and worked with some local artists. And we ended up getting a local artist, um, Troy Mitchell, Gerald Austin, and John Mitchell, Henry Wynn, and formed a group called Three Feet. And they ended up getting a deal um, with London Polygram Records. And we went up to New York and started to work on um, their album with Herbie, Herbie Azor, Herbie Lovebug, the producer of founder of Salt and Pepper, mm-hmm. and worked on the Salt and Pepper project a lot too. And so I did I did a little stuff in the industry in, in America before I got with Teddy. I actually got with Teddy um, through an internship program that was offered through, through Norfolk State when I was a, a student there. Okay. So what was that like for the first time you're sitting down meeting Teddy and it's like, man, I listen to Guy, all the stuff he's producing, and I have the chance to work for him. So how did you play it cool and knowing that, hey, I got to go in and get the job done and be all about my business? It was, it was funny because I think like a few months earlier, I think I was at a, um, like what was like one of the last Guy concerts in Washington, D.C. And um, I knew he was coming to Virginia. I, I was doing an intern. I was I was in Norfolk State University, but all, I was also living in a halfway house because I had been arrested for something. So I was, you know, trying to find ways to get out of the halfway house. So I, I, I worked. I went to college. I did everything I could to, to shorten my time in the halfway house. But um, I got wind of him first because we actually dropped when I was working with the group Three Feet before the, before we got our deal with Polygram. We dropped demos off to the studio. We knew the studio had just been built, and you know he was moving to Virginia, and um, we dropped some demos off to the studio um, to his brother-in-law at the time, Omar Chandler. And um, you know nothing became of the demos. We went on and got our deal with Polygram. Went up to New York and did that. Probably like a year, a year or so in between dropping the demo off and actually going back to um, become an intern. So it was, it was, um, it was strange. The first day I met him, I actually had to walk to the studio. I had a car, but I had people watching me. I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to be driving. So I had people watching me. <laughs> I had to walk from the college, Norfolk State to the studio on Virginia Beach, which was probably like six or seven miles. So I got there, I was tired, I was sweaty. I stood outside for a few minutes, got myself together, and then walked in and met him. He was sitting in his, um, in his I guess, pool room at the time. And we just talked for a few minutes, you know. Mm, now coming in, was it more of I'm gonna have you do the technical stuff or get in where you fit in, whatever needs to be done, go ahead and get it done. No task too big or too small. Coming in, it was it was like um you're a college student, you go to the black college, you know what I'm saying? I I, I support college students. Teddy was, you know, he was a, he was amazing. The first the first meeting, it was like he was he was like a big kid. He was like um, he was like real jovial, real happy at the time. And he was like real supportive of college students. He was um, he was honored to have his business selected to be an intern program at Norfolk State. And um, I can't highly recommend it from the president of the university and the the, um, the 
the dean of my department. So, um, and he liked the stuff that I, he liked the fact that I knew a lot of um, music jargon and how to do a lot of sampling and sequencing and stuff with the Atari computer that I learned in, in Europe. He, he, you know, he liked the fact that I knew his, his language. I spoke mm -hmm. his language. Yeah, cause so it wasn't like a video where you fit in. It was like um, I'll, I'll welcome aboard. I'm passing you on to somebody else, and they're going to tell you what to do. So it was like it was more like a welcoming, more so like a um, giving me a general description of what to do. So he passed me on to his sister-in-law, um, Nicole Rimbert. She was the office manager, and I, I worked in the business office initially as an intern, and um. He actually knew about some of the some of the um, the stuff that I did overseas and with salt and pepper. So he's like, I got some some CDs over there. You can go through the box and if anything good, you know, pull out and let me listen to them. And I went in the back room. It was like a back a back room. There was like a junk closet, junk room. It was a big room. Had a lot of junk in it. And there was a box back there about the size of a the size of a dresser. And it was just like, you could just dive in it and it was cassette tapes and CDs. It wasn't CDs back then. It was just cassette tapes. But it was cassette tapes all the way down to the bottom of the box. To the box. And I actually listened to all of them. Yeah, I was about to ask you that. Did you just pick the best ones? But you said you listened to every single demo and I'm sure it was hard to kind of figure out what was good, what was all right, and what was trash. Well, I had a method because it was all trash to me. It was all in the box. It was just a bunch of CDs and envelopes and packages. And what I did is the ones who took the most time to make a, a decent presentation, I set those aside first. The ones who just sent like uh, a CD with a handwritten thing on it, I, I, those were the last ones I listened to. I listened to them, but those were the last ones I got to. And some of those were better than the, the ones that were well packaged, but I just you know gave the ones that went through the, the time of packaging their thing and typing up a letter and you know sending a, a photo in with their demo. I gave them first consideration. But I eventually listened to all those tapes that box. Yeah, and I'm sure some people got that short little envelope that had a rejection letter saying, thank you for your submission, but we feel that you're not ready at this time. So keep going and submitting in the future. Best of luck, future studios. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I learned how to write the rejection letters from working the office work that I did overseas. I learned how to do a lot of the administrative stuff that labels do, working with a major label overseas. So Teddy's label wasn't a major label. He was a, a, a subsidiary of a major label, but I brought major label experience to his, to, to his label. And he didn't even know at the time because at that time I was just an intern. I, I hadn't even proven myself that, at that point. Mm, and over in Europe, that was with CBS Records, correct? Yeah. Mm, and uh, real quick spoiler for some of you that may have not read the book, we're going to talk about it a little bit. So you might want to not listen to the podcast until you actually finish reading. But you mentioned a brief encounter initially with the King of Pop while overseas in Europe. And while it was brief, it was like when Michael Jackson enters a room how do you try to keep your composure with a man who stared in front of the crowd maybe five minutes plus at his Super Bowl performance, did not utter a word, and you have people passing out just at the sight of this man? So it was, it was a, like the first, 
when I was in Europe working at CBS, I was in the marketing department. We would just I, I, was, I was I had a chance to meet a lot of artists that were coming to um, Italy to perform. But my job was like to go out to record stores and you know put up flyers and posters of the artists and you know do like street team stuff, basically like street team stuff. Go to record radio stations and you know do pre promotion before the artists got there or as their project came out. So we were in the office getting ready. We, we knew the bad project, the, the tour was about to jump off. And um, our office was like 200, 300 miles away from the, where the first concert was at. We, we had planned to do our work that morning and then head down there that afternoon. So the supervisor came out in the hallway, a guy named Chuck Rolando. He came out in the hallway. He said, everybody come stand in the hallway. I got a surprise for you. Like said in Italian, of course, I, I, my Italian is rusty now, but I, I, I was fluent at one time. But he came in, called us out in the hallway. We stood in the hallway, and then Michael and his entourage walked through, and he just shook everybody's hand, and he's like, thank you for working on my project, and thank you for, you know, with the work you're doing. And when he got to me, he was like, are you Italian? I was like, no, I'm from Virginia. And he just, you know, just cool, and kept going. And it was like, their brief encounter, but it was like, it was amazing. It was just like um, they, 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 we went back into an office and we were like, where we were, where our work pace may have been like, you know, when we went back to our office, we were like, we got to get to it. You know, it gave us, it energized us. It, it just boosted us up, just that little pass through and, and thank you for working on the project. So mm, now, is there any difference when working for a European division of an American label? Like, is there a little bit more? freelance that you can do or somebody's always in contact with the American division of, hey, we got so-and-so coming. We want to do this. And is there like a lag? Was there a lag time between an album coming out in the U.S. before it got pushed internationally? You no, know, um, like some albums, some projects, we had Terrence Trent Darby. Terrence Trent Darby, you remember that artist? Mm -hmm. Now it goes by saying, and the Maitreya, yeah. Terrence Trent Darby, actually um, was a European debut before he was um, US, I think. So that's, that, and that was one of the CBS artists. So, and, and as far as like who came, that, all, all of this stuff was coming from like the headquarters. The, the company I worked with, worked with was like in the CBS building and we, we, we were armors of, arm of CBS. So we did all of their marketing for them. Um, so it just like, you get you get like work notices or work notifications trickle down like what you're gonna be doing for the week, what's coming out, you know, like a, a schedule of what's coming out. We would have we would have uh, strategy meetings like um, where we were gonna go, who we we're gonna target, different kind of meetings before a project came out. So I learned a lot about strategizing and project management and you know just marketing projects in that in that setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know radio, at least back then over in Europe, was a lot different compared to over here in the U.S., where in the U.S. is very much fragmented between different genres. But over in Europe, you'd be lucky if you hear something R&B or rap at that time, because I know for sure in England, they had underground pirate radio where that's where you would hear your R&B your rap and a lot of the Brit soul acts such as Loose Ends, Five Star, 52nd Street. That's where they got big before the US came calling and they made their bones over here. 
Yeah, you're right. And and it was um I have a whole album where one side is one side has a rap version on it and one side is a singing version. And and I, I paired up with a lot of groups in Europe and did projects like that where one side was singing and the other side was me rapping their songs. So it was a lot of projects like that because of that reason. You're absolutely right. Mm, now overseas, I know you have to tailor make your album to fit your market. Now over there, I know SoundWise is a little bit different to what was going on over here in America, but did you hear some acts over there during that time that you felt, man, this could probably work in America, but they were just too ahead of the curve and America wasn't ready yet? Uh, yeah, it's a few, it was a few of them. Um, especially if you get fusion where, where the artist is, um, English is a second language, so to say. But they're really they're really good, but English is their second language, so it's like they they like almost missed the mark in that in that sense. But yeah, you come across that a lot. Yeah, because Europe, I think more than any country, they're very good at pop, making that good pop music. Cause if you go to Sweden, look at all the work out of Sharon Pop Studios with Max Martin, Dennis Pop, Herbie Krishlow, early Backstreet Boys, early NSYNC. Ace of Base, Robin, and the sign by Ace of Base, it was the number one album and song in the US for 94, and no international act has done that since. So what makes you think, just knowing music like you do, how Europe is so pop-centric? I, I have two, I have two um, buddies that I used to record with that are still in Europe. Um, I want to shout out Christian Hornbustel. He's a DJ in, in, in Germany. He's a uh, one of the top DJs in Germany. He tours, he does like big concert venues. And um, he keeps, we communicate a lot. And the other one is Enrico Santa Catarina. Enrico is a, is a, is a, is a great musician. He plays every instrument, literally plays every instrument. He has videos on YouTube. You could, um, you could find him on YouTube, but he's, YouTube videos where he's actually playing every instrument and he does songs that um that may sound like renditions of American songs, but with his own flair on it because there's a, a definite market there. They don't necessarily have to come to the US to be successful artists. There's a definite market there and they've been, you know, um touring and and doing still successful in music since I left Europe. And we still communicate actively. Thank, thank, thanks to Facebook and social media now, I'm able to actually see them. They're trying to get me to shave my beard off, but I'm, able, I'm actually able to see them nowadays instead of just writing or talking to them on the phone. But, but over the time, we've always kept in contact with each other. Right. I mean, we came a long way from the old school calling cards, having to dial 011 and all those long numbers for an international call to where you can just FaceTime. But I say Europe is a fertile training ground because if you look at Backstreet Boys in, in sync, how before they broke big in America, they went off to Europe to cut their teeth. And then by the time they came back to America, they were already seasoned for torn in and around Europe, the UK, and they were ready for, for over here once and pop then, then, was ready in America. And then hip hop, in hip hop, you had artists like Houdini do that. And and actually that's what my label was gearing me up for. They were my next release before I stopped being an artist was supposed to was supposed to be a US release. 
So they, they kind of like um, season you, gear you up over there and then shoot you over here in some instances. But it was a commodity. I, I, I was more of a commodity than a, than a, a, a hot artist. And I'll be admit, I'll admit that myself. I, I listened to some of the stuff I made back then. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but I was more of a, a commodity than a hot artist. Being a black person in Europe with um, some degree of talent, you know, they, they sought to exploit me, which they did to a degree where I, I actually was able to, to, um, to see the exploitation and escape it before it got too deep. You did. Mm-hmm. Now with the contract, was it hard to translate it with it being in Italian and knowing like, okay, this is how the point structure works. This is where the mechanical structure is on page four. And it's going to tell me up front, okay, if I keep X percentage of my publishing, I'm going to get X amount of dollars on the back end. It's, it's like if I gave you uh, 15 pages of hieroglyphics, but on the last page, it was a check for $25,000 and you could read that in the United States in, 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 in plain English. And um, it, I never read the contract until after I stopped, I had to translate it. This guy named Mac, this guy named um, Chuck Rolando, he was instrumental. He's like, that's the person I went to to complain about my royalties, not, not getting my royalties. And he was the only person that asked me, have you ever read your contract? And I was like, no, like I had made like four albums and, and been on a lot, lots of tours and stuff and never read my contract, but I was getting money off of tours and you know, the money that they fronted me, I was still spending that. I never had that much money before, but it wasn't, it, it was more money owed to me. So Maximo um, set me down and made me read that contract. That's why I told you, I learned how to write a contract from a blank sheet of paper and I could write it all, all, every paragraph, every phrase, every clause, all the way down to the signature page out of memory now, because I learned that that's how deep I, I got into studying um, music industry contracts, publishing deals, artist deals, management deals, label deals. It was like, I, I got into it. So I know, I knew every, I knew everything there was to know about it. Right. And for all you artists that's up and coming, read it read it, read it, get your Donald Passman books, get your Kashif's books, know as much as you can, know your math and whatever you do, do not sell your publishing. Play the long game because if you sell out your publishing now and it becomes something later on, you're going to lose out on a lot of money. Look at Mariah Carey. I mean, she's still making money off all her catalog, but her Christmas song, she could buy a house for her kids their kids, their kids, kids. It's the gift that keeps on giving if you can write a good hit that's going to get played every Publishing. year. Publishing, yes, sir. Mm, yeah, that's definitely the jewel of the game. Like uh, a trial called Quest, especially Q-Tip said, industry rule number 4,080. Record company people are shady. Not all of them, but uh, some of them are. We ain't going to say no names. But being the studio manager of Future Studios, was it primarily a private studio for Teddy's use and the in-house production staff? Or could somebody come in and maybe get an hour or two or do some block time? No, it was strictly strictly in-house artists, but the in-house artists paid Heavily. It was like we charged the in-house artists for using the studio too, because every in-house artist had some type of financial situation that, that was supposed to um, 
allowed them to to pay for using the studio and the facilities and the equipment within the facilities. Mm. Now, with that, would that be docked out of pay, or would they have to pay that separately if they wanted to use studio time? Um, it would be paid. It would be invoiced to to whatever project they're working on. Say, for instance, like I use mucho. He don't care if I use him. <laughs> I use mucho, for instance, but mucho working on 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 a project for artist X, right? Mm-hmm. And he spends um, a certain number of hours in the B room and he uses a certain number of real to real tapes and a certain number of DA88s. All that stuff is invoice. So when he gets his money from working with Artist X, then it's his responsibility to settle that invoice. Okay. So it's not coming out, out of a budget, it's eventually going to be recouped and you got to pay up at the end of the day. Now, that's one scenario. Scenario B. All right, Mucho's working on Black Street, right? And mm-hmm. Black Street has a, a, a budget, right? All of the time that Mucho uses in the studio comes out of Black Street budget, not necessarily out of Mucho's money because that's a, a project that, like you said, that has a budget for it and it's not, a, it's not a one-off project where somebody's coming in to get production from one of the in-house producers. Mm, and studio time was not cheap. So that's why artists had to make sure that they weren't playing around because literally time was money. Yeah, time was money. And then you had a lot of artists that used to just like to write in the studio. I think that was the worst idea to write in the studio because the clock is still ticking and all you're doing is thinking. I think, the, you know, the more productive way is to write before you come in the studio. So when you get there, you're ready to actually go to work. Right, and you mentioned how there was an A studio and a B studio. So what's the setup for that? Kind of like, you know how back in the day when you're going to go play a pickup game of basketball, you have your big court where all the ball is at, but then you have your small court where everybody's waiting their turn to get on the big court. Was it like that setup? Right, right. That's that kind of setup. But you notice the only thing on the court is the players, the ball, and it goes, right? Mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's a big court or a small court. So the rooms were compatible in, in production capabilities. It was just a visual, the big room, you know, with the big console. And of course you could do more live, um, more live recording in, in the A studio because there was a live room attached to it. A live room where you could hook up drums or you could have a full band in there. The B room was mostly for um, instrumental production and vocal referencing. So it was a small vocal booth for the, that accompanied the B room as opposed to a whole live room where you could do live recording. Mm. Now, was it a setup where you could hear what was coming out of either studio or you literally had to go? No, no, no it was soundproof. A- you could go. It was soundproof. You could be in it. Teddy could be in the A room banging it out, banging it out, banging it out. And Sprague could be in the B room banging it out. And I could be in the hallway and wouldn't heard neither one of them. Mm. Now, as far as the in-house producers and writers, was there a process in determining who was going to be the in-house producers and writers and who was going to get on what project? That was that was all Teddy's. That was all left up to Teddy. That was his determination, I guess, between him and the, and the actual producers who were there. But yeah, that was, that was his. Mm. And did you learn quickly, okay, this is what he likes his setters to be on certain pieces of equipment. These are the times that he likes to record and just the ins and outs of when he's in the studio working. He's definitely a night owl. 
he's definitely a, definitely a night owl, but then he's like a damn, he's like, he could be up all day doing stuff with the kids or doing family stuff, you know, doing like, um, you know, just doing regular stuff. And then he'll disappear in the midst of the day. And then all night you'll see him in the studio doing something between between one of the rooms, between the rec room, the A room, or the D room. He was just bouncing around a lot. Right. And I know and some. Then when, and then when we got the studio bus, then when we got the, the studio bus, the bus was parked outside. So he, he was like Ricochet Rabbit. He'd be in A room, B room, bus, A room, B room, bus, you know? So, so always working because I hear Michael, when he worked, it was like whenever the idea struck, he would write it down, go to a studio and record. So now when he was at Future to record for Dangerous, how was it to where you guys were kind of able to keep it on the low to make sure word didn't get out that Michael was in Virginia Beach recording? Well, we, we thought we had it under control because it was a small, um, we had a small close-knit organization, right? As far as the actual employees who worked there, but we had people on the payroll who who um who were like optimistic, I guess, and opportunists or whatever you call them, and um just leaked the leaked to the media that Michael Jackson was in town. So it was like um it was like a couple of days of frenzy once the media found out. But he was most of the time nobody knew when he was there. Mm, so it really wasn't people stalking outside the future trying to catch a glimpse, yeah, it was. trying to take a it picture. Was. It was. It was. We had to. We had to change our whole security protocol at one time. But one time we had an open parking lot because we shared our business shared the parking lot with a veterinarian clinic. So that's a, another reason we did a lot of business at nighttime because in the daytime the vet clinic would be open and you would get patients taking their animals to the to the vet clinic in the daytime. They had their half of the parking lot, but we had our half of the parking lot in front of our building. But we would have so many visitors that. It would just overwhelm the parking lot. So most of the activity took place at night. So it wouldn't be a parking problem. And um, yeah, it was it was a lot of nighttime activity going on there. Mm -hmm. And with it being such a small studio and very well known and people coming in, coming out. Now, as a studio manager, did you have to turn people away that were just hanging on with so-and-so and say, nah, this is a closed session. You can't be here. Yeah, a lot, a lot. I was a bad guy there. I did a lot of things that other people didn't want to do. Other people were reluctant to do, like as far as like turning people away, um, breaking bad news to people, just doing things that administrative and personnel, a lot of people didn't want to do. So yeah, I turned a lot of people away at the door. Um, some people, you know, for good reason. Some people had ill intent. You don't want them in there. You don't want them around in the first place, but um, Teddy had a great, a great security guy, my brother Sifu Watts, and um, I had to worry about nothing as long as Sifu was around, actually. So, yeah, and, okay. and, and his cousin, and his cousin, my other brother Chris, Chris Washington, Crystal, as you know, those two guys that um, that that stood always stood strong in the trenches, and and if they were, if one of the, if one of the two were around, it was like I was, I was kind of at ease. Mm -hmm. And I know for some people, when they're creating, some like to have the party environment with everybody and their mom in the studio. Others like to just keep it simple with the engineer, 
the producer and whoever just small. So how are you able to balance that depending on who was coming to the studio, who would like a more open environment with people and those that wanted more clothes, more work? I think I think in in future in future what I would notice is that it depends on what song was being done. If it was an up-tempo song and it was like a party type song, then they would set a party type environment. We'd do something fun the day before. We'd go bowling. You know, a bowling was like an escape. We'd do something fun all day, then come back and it'd be a fun type environment there. If they were working on a ballad or slow song, it would, the, the mood would be different. It would be a different type of environment set before they start recording. So it pretty much depends on what the project was to what the mood was going to be. And, with the, with the producers or with the artists at that particular day. Mm-hmm. And the studio, it was not too far from Princess Anne High School and three young men who we now know as the Neptunes were going around the studio, just trying to get on, try to get their chance. Cause I believe it was a talent show that Teddy would put on. And this was at the time when they performed and as we all know, the story with the Neptunes and how once they got their foot in the door at Future, sky was the limit. Yeah, yep, the Neptunes, you describe them right, there's three young men from Princess Anne High School. And um, I first met them, I, I wasn't even working at the studio yet, I was, I was still working at the business office. I was at the studio taking care of some, some business or getting Teddy to sign some papers or something. And, um, I was standing by the front door and Teddy had went in the back to, to grab something and the three young men opened, came up to the door and I opened the door. He's like, oh God, tell him I ain't here. I was like, already, like, they got, I got pest control. Tell him I ain't here. And he ducked in the cut. So I opened the door and I noticed the one had the big silver coat on. He had some goggles on his head. They're all of them were dressed unique. All of them were cool. But, you know, I talked to them at the front door and they told me who, who they were. And I just, you know, just, I had seen their demo in the box uh, uh, like around that same time. So I don't know if they got a letter that I, I actually set up that first listening session for Teddy based on the, the demos that we found in the box. And um, I don't know if they got a letter is why they were starting to come around more or if they just, you know, just saw Teddy being down the street and was like, let's go shoot our shot now. He, we already sent him my demo. <laughs> And get back with the sword demo, so let's just go and keep knocking on the door. But for whatever reason, they knocked on the door enough until they finally made their way in. Right, and we all know what came after that. And now you got the Something in the Water Festival at the Oceanfront in Virginia Beach, yeah. and all of the talent that spawned, you know, Neptunes, Timberland, Missy, Clips. And on YouTube, somebody had uploaded a demo of SBI, Surrounded by Idiots, with uh, Pharrell and Timbaland. And even though it was rough, you could hear that both of them were going to be special once they got their opportunity. Yeah, that's what a lot of groups used to do back then. They they worked together, surrounded by idiots, until nothing manifested. Then they went their separate raids and got Timbaland and Pharrell and and Mike Etheridge and... um, Chad and Shay became the, the Neptunes, and then Timberland got with Missy, and they did their thing with Devontae Swing's camp, a whole different producer camp. So, but um, it was fun seeing the the evolution, you know, uh, over the time, seeing like Pharrell 
sitting on the floor in the in the in the listening session watching other rappers perform to putting on his own major showcase years later, decades later. So and blessing is a blessing to be around long enough to see that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. So talk about the process of watching the recording of Black Street's debut album. That was that was uh, magic in the making, man. It's like I, like I said, I was that was my intern period there. I was just starting, and um, I my the internship that I did prior to going in the future, I was interning with Spike Lee at Forty Acres on the Mule in the wardrobe department on the, on the movie Malcolm X, right? And um, I did that for like a half a summer. Came back and did my rest rest of my summer school, and then the next internship was for Teddy. And at that time, he was working on the Black Street album, but Joe Stone Street was um, a member of the group. Joe Stone Street was still in the group. And they were doing um, the song Baby Be Mine for the CB4 soundtrack. And they were coming up with the, the, the video concept, looking for locations. And I was able to help them find a lot of locations, being from the area, you know, finding alleys in downtown Norfolk where we could shoot that, that made it look good, you know, made it look hood. And you know, did a lot of um, post pre-production stuff leading up to the video shoot. So it was exciting to see, you know, that that project come out. And then it was odd because a few months later they remade the video. <laughs> it was like, oh, the version we did in Virginia wasn't good enough. They had to go out to Cali and do a California video. And then a few weeks after that, Joe was out of the group. So I'm like, yo, what happened? This was the first album wasn't even finished yet. They did two videos for one song, and. Then this dude is out of the group. So, but Dave Hollister came in, and Dave was a good fit. And and um, I was sitting, you know, sitting in sessions while music was being made. And like I like I said, it was a magical time because everybody's creative juices was flowing so much, and it was such a creative atmosphere that I remember sitting in the, in the room one time with Teddy before he even started playing any music. I think it was just me, him, and a couple of engineers and a couple of guys from Black Street in the room. But before he started playing any music, he's just sitting at the keyboard and bopping. No music is playing. And then you can see everybody in the room just starts bopping about the same tempo. And then he just starts building the beat, building the beat. And then before you know it, it's lush chords added. And then Dave's in there singing and Chauncey's in there singing. And you, next thing you got hit. So I'm like, wow. It was, it was, a, it was a wonderful thing to see manifest. Mm -hmm. any, any, anytime you see anytime you see an idea come from an idea form from an idea form to like um a complete project is 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 a bit of magic you know even 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 in um the early stuff of salt and pepper seeing seeing you know sitting in herbie's basement studio at his mom's house in queens to going to the SP awards and going to saturday night live and you know, David Letterman show with those ladies. Um, that was magic too. That's like magic. Right, because it was back in the days when labels used to have two videos where one version would be specifically for what they would call urban, like BT, The Box, mm -hmm. or your regional video channels. And then you have your mm -hmm. mainstream polished one, which would go towards MTV. Because I remember seeing both those videos, like you mentioned, the one where they spliced in the movie scenes, and then the one in the alley. And that album, it said to people like, okay, 
if you thought God was something, wait until you hear this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Teddy was at the top of his game, can't do no wrong. And I believe this was right around the same time when uh, New Kids on the Block came down to record some cuts with Teddy and Leon for the Face the Music album, which to me is their best album. And I had a chance to interview Danny Wood. It was telling me the same thing that that was, he felt it was really the album where people could say, hey, these guys aren't just the right stuff step by step. These guys are true R&B because when you listen to some of those cuts like Girls, Never Let You Go, they to me, they sound like Blackstreet cuts. Yeah, I had, I had, they, they they do sound like Black Street Cuts because New Kids is dope. I had a lot of fun um, when they were in town recording with them. I actually uh, had a story in the book about taking a couple of guys. I, I uh, my name the names elude me right now, but I can remember the faces which ones I took. I took a couple of guys to the movie theater, and um, we had to make a we had to we had to make a Plan B escape route. By the time somebody found out they were in the movie theater, it was a mob of girls outside looking for him so we had to sneak out the back of the movie to get away yeah still at the height of new kids mania and can we talk about we mentioned leon silvers earlier just what mm-hmm. he brought to future and working with teddy from what he'd done for his own family at the silvers and then what he did as a in-house producer and writer over at solar um leon leon is an amazing musician and 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 He's a, a he, the way he crafts songs is special, you know. He, I think, um, I think he brought a lot of the melodic work to to the project. A lot of lot, melodic work to the project. He had also had like Bernard Bell there. Bernard Bell was a beast on the bass guitar, and he brought a lot of um, he brought a lot of good sounds and good melodies in with him as well. Teddy Teddy has a, his New Jack swing beat sounds and his certain sounds that he likes to use and um, certain drum sounds that he likes to load up, customized. But um, those guys contributed, um, like I said, the melodies and some of the intricacies to the, to the songs that made them beautiful hits. Mm, you mentioned Bernard Bell, brother of Regina Bell. If you look at any Teddy Riley cut, you'll see his name listed along with Teddy and, of course, Leon Silvers. But I want to talk about this one person who I felt was the secret sauce to a lot of Teddy stuff, Tammy Lucas. Oh, yeah, Tammy was a sweetheart, man. Tammy was a sweetheart. I met Tammy, um, and she used to hang around for real a lot. Um, when I when I first met her, she used to be around for real in them a lot. And they brought, um, her pen game is crazy, man. Like, she writes some beautiful songs. Like, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about her lyrics right now. But like the, some of the songs that she wrote for Black Street, some of the more beautiful ballads that you you hear on the album, and um, I really thought Tammy because um, because of the success that she had with her song, I really thought that she was going to be an artist that was released on one of Teddy's labels. Teddy had a lot of labels when I worked there. Um, we had LOR Records, Life of Riley Records. We had Little Man Records. We had Funky Mama Records, which was which, which, um, Markel's record label. So, and then there was NCA deal and Interscope situation. So, but I really thought Tammy Lucas would be an artist that would be released under Teddy's umbrella. Um, her voice is beautiful and her pen game was straight and for whatever reason, it didn't materialize, but she's still a wonderful person. Mm, her background vocals, 
best in the business. You mentioned pin game is crazy. And, and I don't know if this is true or not. I've heard that Joy was originally supposed to be on the Dangerous album for Michael Jackson. But for reasons or another, it didn't make the final cut. And then that's how Blackstreet ended up um, recording it and putting it on their album. Yeah, that's that's the story. Joy was supposed to be a Michael Jackson song, but Blackstreet got it. Levi did a tremendous job with it. Um, Levi did a great job with Joy, and that's his song now. <laughs> mm. That's a Blackstreet song, but that's Levi's song. Right. And you answered a question for me earlier that I always wondered in terms of Teddy's sounds. You said it was pr primarily customized, so he really didn't use a lot of stock sounds that were already preloaded? And people used to steal Teddy sounds, and, and, and Mucho was famous for that. Mucho used to steal Teddy sounds. <laughs> no, he gonna, he, gonna, he gonna swear he didn't, but they used to they used to take the time to customize their sounds, and Teddy had like, um, and then it's got in Little Chris. Little Chris used to, Little Chris definitely used to take Teddy sounds. We had these um, three and a half inch floppy disks back then that used to load into the MPC and had all your sounds on it. And little Chris would have like, Teddy would have like um, cases, plastic cases full of floppy disks with sounds on them. He would make his own sounds. Nobody nobody was doing it that I know at the time. Like when I worked with other producers in the past, they would use whatever stock sounds were came with the keyboard or whatever stock sounds came with the drum machine. Teddy would customize it, he would make the the snares snap harder, the kicks would sound like unique. So he would have his own sounds. And then you, you had some of the in-house producers that was like, damn, I want my drums to sound like Teddy. So if he left a drum, a drum disc laying out, they would run the copy sounds. Man, that that shows that you're innovative when you got people wanting to take what you've done add their own spin to it, but they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, now, now it's big in, in production because um, artists are producing stems, what's called music stems, and they just ship them out stem, pack, stem packages, right? And had that been the case in the 90s when we were there, and his, his, his portfolio would be crazy with the number of stems and the number of little pieces that he could have put out. It's crazy. It would have been crazy. Yeah, because I can remember watching an interview that he did for the Red Bull Academy. He was saying it was after the whole split with GR Productions and Gene and how he was ready to tap out throwing the towel. But he got a call from Ben Medina, who was at Warner Brothers, told him, hey, we got this artist, Jane Child, that got this song that's doing good on Urban, but we really want to take it up a notch and have you do a remix. And he said, man... I'm going to tear this remix to pieces if you allow me the opportunity to get this album. And that was the remix for Don't Want to Fall in Love. Because to me, I felt Teddy, even though he's great as a producer on regular cuts, I feel like to me, he really shines with remixes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think he's just a, a, a talented individual all around. It's like the remixes, um, Remix is subjective because he's like the, 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 the original producer is going to always like his version. <laughs> mm, yeah, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now, exactly. th there's a spot that was right down the street from the studio that you all used to frequent, that IHOP. I'm like, there must be something about IHOP in that Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity. Yes, Lord. 
IHOP. We used to we used to burn IHOP up. That was like the late night. That was the only thing that was open late at night when Teddy would be working. So if if three o'clock in the morning he wanted some turkey bacon and eggs and stuff, we would make all those make runs to IHOP. And it was just like we we went there so much the whole staff knew us. And one of the guys who um who who crafted no diggity actually married one of the girls in IHOP. Will Skills married one of the waitresses in IHOP. We went there so much. So. Wow. Now, speaking of no diggity, whose idea was it to come up with the sample to use grandma hands by the late Bill Withers? When I when I heard no diggity, the first time I heard no diggity, it was in a house. It was in a, a house around the corner from the studio. We used to call it the Boggs House. We used to call it the Players Palace. All of the, the keyboard players, all the players used to live in there, but we used, had a double, double entendre, the name Players Palace, right? And Will had a, a room on the second floor, and I used to always go over there and chill with Will. And he played Grandma's Hands and, and the No Diggity Beat for me. Now, I don't know if Teddy gave him the Grandma's Hands to put it, to integrate into the No, no Diggity Beat that he was making, but Will had the beat. So I don't know whose idea it was to integrate Grandma's Hand. I heard in past interviews that Teddy said he, he did it, but the day I heard the song, was in the house and Will was crafting it and he had grandma's hands already there in it. Mm, now to get Dr. Dre on the track, did you have to primarily go through his label to get on or was it where mutual relationships came in where somebody said, hey, I want you on this track and hey, just say the word instead of going through all these different channels? Um. They were on the same label, actually. Dr. Dre was on Interscope and Teddy was on Interscope at the time. So I think it was like a Jimmy Iovine connection that um, that made that happen. I, I really didn't have anything to do with Dr. Dre getting on the album. I had something to do with the, the video, getting the video production portion of it. Mm, now, the video, classic in itself, primarily for the use of the puppets, which was very popular at the time, coming off of the Little Penny commercials that Penny Hardaway had out where Chris Rock was the voice of Little Penny and No Diggity, still a classic to this day. Heard it in Pitch Perfect, heard it in The Fruit of a Loom Ad. So more money, more money, more money. What do you think about the Steven Lucas version of No Diggity? Mm, I thought I thought it was thought it was okay. You know, for me, nothing can top the original. Now, in order right. to get now, in order to get the clearance for the Bill Wither sample. Did you know, do you know if you had to go through the publishing house that owned the copyright to that or directly to Mr. Withers himself to get the green light to use the sample? So back then I used to do a lot of sample clearances and it was, for that particular one, I don't recall, but it was some instances where we had to go to the individual because the individual would control their own publishing. And it was instances where we had to go to the, um, to the label and it depends on what type of sampling what type of usage we were doing too because if we were um getting if we were doing a sample taking it lifting something from the record we would have to get mechanical licensing royalty as well as the licensing from the songwriter so uh that's why a lot of times you heard teddy replay stuff so we could get the 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 um we wouldn't have to worry about the mechanical license portion of it Right, because I know with sampling, it depends on how much you sample, how long you sample, how how much right. the point structure is going to be. Because I know recently with the Ed Sheeran record, the Shape of You record, I know Candy and Tiny, they sued to get credit on that because they were saying Ed Sheeran lifted no scrubs 
And once that got resolved, they ended up getting the songwriter's credit on that record. Right, right. Yeah, so, and this was back during the time where technology had progressed at that time, but when sampling was really brand new, you had to do little tricks of the trade in order to manipulate the machine to give you longer sample time because the bit rate was so low. Yeah, you had to do, you had to, you had to loop your samples, you had to piece your samples together, like one note may be on one key and the second part of the sample may be on a, on a different key. So you had to do little tricks to make your, to get your, sampling used to be difficult back then. And we had a keyboard called a, a ASR 10 and, and an EPS, Insonic EPS keyboard, they were the sampling keyboards. Mm-hmm. It, um, it was difficult because it had so many different um, terms that were new to people like truncating the sample and then quantizing and people didn't understand them so they couldn't, uh, it was difficult to get your sample to loop right. Right, now with the Insonic, is that the one with the floppy disk drive and you could load that in and have your sample right. already on the floppy right. and play it through the keyboard? Right. Exactly. I, I thought so because there's a YouTube clip of Kanye. This was before he exploded out. He was doing a record for Do or Die where he was chopping up a Shirley Murdoch sample and was using an Insanit keyboard to chop up the sample. And I thought it was yeah. so cool to see that being worked out. That was like the industry standard for sampling back in the day, Insanit. Mm, now with the floppy, you probably couldn't hold a lot of sample time on the floppy. So was it like 30 seconds or less? It's amazing, man. It's like, um, it's amazing how technology has evolved and how many how many songs I could put on this little thumb drive as as opposed to what we used to be able to put on the floppy. But we, used, like I said, we used to have so many floppies. It, it would be like you load parts of a sample and then parts of a sample, you might have three a three part, three or four discs for one sample. Wow, three or four discs for one sample. Now, was it to where people got all paranoid and was kind of hoarding their floppies, putting it in secret spots to make sure nobody bit what they heard? Yeah, yeah. We used to lock Teddy samples. We used to lock Teddy's uh, disc up. Like he, he'll, he'll work late and he might leave his disc open, his disc case open. And he'll go in the room and fall asleep and leave his disc case open. The first thing we would do is lock it and put it away so and save all his settings. So when he came back, everything would be set the same way. We had an engineer who was um, new at the time named Serban. And he used to like to go in and just tinker with stuff. He was learning. So he'd like to go in and tinker with stuff. But he'd change settings. And then Teddy would come back in the room and be like, who changed this? And get, get mad at Serban and blow up at Serban. But it's, it's crazy because Serban... Today, Servant has mixed over 100 number one singles. Wow, that's crazy. And mixing and mastering is an art within itself because if you're the average music lover like myself, it takes a very strong audiophile-like ear to hear an album that is perfectly mixed as opposed to one that has muddy audio quality. Right, and, and that's that's a that's a um, key thing. We used to have our rooms tuned. We used to bring professional engineers um, with special equipment in, and they would stand in the middle of the room and they would play a C note in the speakers. And if their their equipment had to register C note for us to know that the room was properly tuned, so whatever sound was being reproduced in that tune and um, reproduced in that room, 
it was going to be a perfect pitch and perfect tune. So when you got it in your radio in your car or in a nightclub or wherever you was listening to outside of the studio, it was going to bang just as hard. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was about to ask with the process for the producers at Future, were they primarily thinking of the music consumer in mind about how is it going to sound in your car or in your nice component stereo as opposed yes, yes. to one, putting it out for commercial sake? No, one of the things he will always, he will always do is he will always mix a song down, rough, get a rough mix of the song and go listen to it in the car. That was like the proving ground, like take it to the car, see how it sounded in the car. If it didn't sound right in the car, bring it back in, tweak it. As long as it sounded right in the car, that was the final, the final, you know, one of the final steps to being approved. Mm-hmm. If it can do the sound test in your system, then you know it's right. So now with the in-house producers and writers, was there a process for them to determine this is what's going to go on this project. Did it feel kind of like how Motown used to have those quality control meetings where you bring your stuff, we listen to it. If it's a hit, it's going to go on somebody's project. If not, go back to the lab and uh, practice. Like, again, that was mostly Teddy's final decision. Uh, a lot of artists contribute. Like he, like, like the song Booty Call, for instance. There's a lot of remixes to that, to that song because it was like open open houses, like uh, we got the main song done, now we need a remix. All y'all in-house producers, give me a remix and we'll put the best one out. But a lot of them came out was funky. So it's like a lot of remixes, the booty calls, a lot of remixes, the SWV um, joint, Mucho and all of those remixes. So it's, it's a lot of songs got multiple remixes to them because each in-house producer wanted to contribute their their own, put their own stamp on it. Yeah, back when you used to have those maxi CD singles with about six or seven tracks with yeah. the so-and-so mix, the radio edit mix without rap, the album single mix. And it was to where when you would go to your local store, you literally had to buy either the maxi cassette or the maxi CD just for those special mixes. And then I know sometimes too, they would do special remixes for Europe that weren't even released over here in the US. Right, a lot of, a lot of guys over in Germany and France got um, versions of Blackstreet, Rex and Effect songs, um, Zayn songs, all New Jack, they got versions of anything New Jack Swing that we never even heard in the United States or if outside of the studio. And then even in the studio, because a lot of times we would send like, send like um, slave reels to other studios and they would do their song, do this, the other portion of the song in a different studio. And then we heard the final version on the radio or in a, in a, in a listening meet, listening session or something, but. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the book, Patti LaBelle, she came down to record and how she had an adventure going to the Southern staple that is Food Lion. Yeah, like we, um, we had a day where Patty just walked out of the studio and she wanted to cook for everybody. And we had a guy named Earl that used to cook most of the time. And he said he was a good cook, but Patty wanted to cook for everybody this particular day. And I, and she, I was like, right, I'll run, she, run you this store. The food line was like two, two blocks away from the studio. And we just casually went there and walked around the studio and, uh, excuse me, walked around the grocery store. And it was a, uh, uh, 
a stocking a stock clerk there, and he was a fan of hers, and he was following us down every aisle trying to get a good look and see if that was really her. Until uh, one of the cashiers blew her cover and was like, "That's Natalie LaBelle. So it was it was cool. She was cool about it. Mm, and I'm sure y'all ate good once that food was done. You probably were the first ones to really have that patty pie. Yeah, I, I stayed close and made sure I got my plate because we had a lot of a lot of big hungry dudes around the studio. <laughs> so I stayed close and made sure I got my plate. But that's what that's what like that's why I touch on a, in a, a lot in the book is like my personal interactions with the artists that came through there. We had so many people come through there. A lot of people I didn't even put in the book. Some people I forgot to mention in the book, like like my boys, um, Mr. Cheeks and Freaky Tide, the Lost Boys. I I thought I sat back and read the book. I was like, how can I forget these guys, you know? But we just had so many people coming through and had so many good interactions with so many people that, you know, I just wanted to share share those experiences with people. Mm, now with the book, was this the first time where you were able to really stop and appreciate everything that was taking place at Future, but while you were in the moment working, you didn't really stop to really say, man, I'm working with, one of the world-renowned producers. We have top-flight artists coming through, and man, this is just amazing. It was. It was. Um, in, in the moment, it was. It was normal. It was normal to me. It was like a, a normal sense of normality. It wasn't anything extraordinary. I knew God put me in a, in a different, in a certain position, and and. The opportunity to be there and and to see all of the witness all of this was for a reason, but um, it wasn't overwhelming. But looking back on it and then talking to people and telling people or, or like like um, I give you an example. I was at a concert with a with a with a young lady friend. I was sitting on the, on like the third row, and one of the artists that um, from Future back in the day was performing and spotted me in the crowd. This young lady never knew about my Future past or anything. Well, he spotted me in the crowd and pointed me out and called me up. So it's like, um, it's like, it's like, it's so unbelievable, unbelievable to other people. People used to always say, you should write a book about that. You should write a book. You should write a book. And then, and then my brother, Sifu Watts, Tony Watts, who used to be Teddy's personal security for about the last 15, 10, 15 years, he's been telling me that He's going he's he's working on the book. I'm working on the book and just sharing his experiences with me and you know impressed upon me. So he he really inspired me to get it started and work on it and complete it. And um after I got my book finished, I went back to him and I told him that I wanted him to I wanted to help him complete his his book. So we started working on his project in the form of a documentary. Um we're releasing a document releasing his story as a documentary. Yeah, and that's great that you all are getting your stories out there because it needs to be told. Because if you take a look at everything that's going on today with pop and R&B and hip hop, Teddy's finger is somewhere on the pulse because we look at the movement with K-pop. That's New Jack Swing influence. Look at what's going on with Pop, Bashy Boys, and Singal, the boy bands. Teddy influence. And how... Timbaland, Missy, Neptunes, Teddy, and probably Roddy Jerkins, Teddy, and you know, it enough. I'll cannot... tell you a funny story. Go ahead. Um, 
Rodney Jerkins, I remember the, the day Rodney Jerkins first came to the studio, my, my um, Earl, the guy I was talking about, Earl actually introduced Teddy Riley to Rodney Jerkins. And and that first day, Teddy was too busy to meet him, so he had to leave and come back. But it's, it's, um, it's like, had it not been for Earl, you know, Rodney Jerkins and Teddy Riley's situation might not have never manifested and materialized. So it's like little, little intricacies like that that go overlooked. And there's people just see the big picture, but don't see how the big picture came came into being. Right. And I want to throw a fun foodie question before we get back more into the music side. We mentioned IHOP earlier. Did anybody mm-hmm. ever make any runs to Chickasee? Chickasee? No, yeah. we have a Chickasee around. Our, 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 our seafood restaurant running place was called Stein Hibbler's. Okay, yeah, because that was one restaurant I always wanted to go to, always passed by it as a kid. When my dad was in Newport News, it was right off, I believe, of Jefferson. And I think they had another location in Newport News, can't recall where. But that was one spot I always wanted to go to. But being from the 757, and we mentioned some of the musical talent that came out of there, but sports-wise, Kenny Easley, Alonzo Mourning, Lawrence Taylor, Hall. Michael Vick, D'Angelo Hall, Classical Burris, what is it in the Tide Water where you have all these great musicians and sports sports athletes coming out of that region of Virginia? I think it's just I think it's it's, it's just a balance, man. It's like Virginia was the first state for everything. I guess the first first state that the black people set foot on in this continent. So I guess we gotta pave the way from here. But it's it's um. It's, it's, it's the, our area is so concentrated too that when people make it, it's noticeable. It's a small, it's a small community, and um, even though it's seven cities, it's like everybody knows somebody in each city. So when somebody makes it from one city, it's like it's, it's like a, a sense of accomplishment for the whole region. Mm-hmm. De- de- definitely that. Oh yeah, Bruce Hornsby, AI, Coco Brown from Newport News, Mike Tomlin yeah. from Newport News, and we can go on and on of everybody that's doing big things out of the 757. Now- Levi, Levi from Black Street actually does, um, has done a lot of work with Bruce Hornsby. Okay. So I, I believe I left Black Street. That's where he went on to, to start his own label in Virginia and start his own studio up in Virginia Beach. And he's working with artists like Bruce Hornsby, local artists. He's doing, Levi's doing some good stuff too. Mm, Steve James, the director of Hoop Dreams and the 30 for 30, no crossover um, about Allen Iverson and everything that went down with, with the bowling alley incident in Hampton. No, no need to really delve into that. So when you left Future, for you, was it where you had a sense of closure once you left or you felt I never really had that closure? when I when you decided to go it was a it was a um it was a, a odd time when I decided to leave it was like um people's money was being funny and pay pay wasn't being right it was um it was like tension in the air we were wearing bulletproof vests to work it was just like crazy shit going on when I decided to leave and the last straw is just like um I always felt like I had Teddy's back regardless of anything. And this particular day, um, Chauncey's cousin and I got into a physical altercation in the office and, and he told both of us to leave for the day. 
I was like, leave? Like, you, you'd make me leave. And it's just like, I was like, fuck it, I'm leaving forever. And when I, when that happened, um, I didn't, I didn't feel no kind of way. Immediately, I got a, a normal job. I got a nine to five job. And I was just like, um, I was just like relieved. It was like a sense of relief that I had to stay up late at night no more and, you know, do certain things. And, and you know, it was just a sense of relief that I had to do certain tasks and associated with being a manager at the studio. But I was still doing music. I started my own label. You know, um, I talked a lot to, I talked a lot to like, People who managed Teddy, like Donna Moore, his one of his managers, Gene Griffin. I, I had a great conversation with him. Um, he actually inspired me to name my record company. He had named his record company Sony Sounds of New York. And when I left Teddy, I started my own record company called Sova Sounds of Virginia. So, um, you know, I, I, I kept busy and active in music um, after leaving there. So it wasn't like a missing, and I, I never burned bridges with any of the former employees there or, you know, any of the artists that worked there. And that's why I tell people, if like, if you're looking for my book to be a, 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 a smut book, a, you know, mudslinging book, then you got the wrong book. I ain't, it ain't that kind of book. You know what I'm saying? It's just like a memoir of my life working at Future Recording Studios and some of the people that I met there. And, um, of course, there were problems and issues, but you know, I would be lying. I would be fantasizing if I didn't um, address those. So, and the problems and issues that I really had, I, I, the whole time I was working with at Future, I never had a problem with Teddy. I never had an issue with him. Um, he might have, he might have got upset at the way I handled some situations because I was kind of like aggressive. But other than that, um, I don't think we had any issues. My main issue came. Years after I stopped working there, I had deposited a check for $20,000 in the bank on a Friday. And I went back to the bank on a Monday thinking I'm, I'm going to give my mom some money out of this $20,000. I'm going to do, you know, got plans for your money. I went back to the bank on Monday. And it was only $6,000 in the bank. I was like, oh, what happened? And then when I found out that um, the, the Division of Child Support Enforcement had a had seized my money from my bank account based on um, non-payment of child support for a three-year period, I went ballistic because I had copies of all of my um, pay stubs from those three years and was showing that child support was being taken out. So it was, a, it was an odd predicament to be placed in. And that was the only problem that I had with Teddy, but even that got resolved. Mm, and you mentioned you know, being on call. So was it more of where your phone or beeper or whatever was on 24 seven and was like, what you doing? I'm asleep. Mm -hmm. um, come on down to the studio. People, it was like, uh, set the session up for Angela Wimbush, set the session up for Whitney Houston, you know, you know, call serving in, call so-and-so in, get the session set up, you know, and it could be anytime he feel like working. So I, I stuck around a lot. I, I, you know, like I said, I stuck around a lot. Um, so I was on hand a lot and then when I wasn't on hand I was somewhere close by we had like little places close by I live close by and we had um, the players palace that I used to hang out at all the time so that was close by so whenever I would get beat or called I would, I would be able to pop up quick mm, yeah and you gotta read this book to hear about the player palace we're not going to spoil everything we're just wetting your appetite so you got to go get this book it's available on amazon 
anywhere you get books. But before we close about this interview, talk about current projects, can we talk about Bitbub and how vocally I tell people this all the time, Big Bub is like Luther Vandross and he went full-blown New Jack Swing with Big Bub. Big Bub is amazing. That's my man. Big Bub is my man. He's always singing around the studio. He's a funny dude. He got a great sense of humor. He's a funny dude, man. And he's always singing and his voice is big. He's big too, but his voice is big too. And another dude, I want to shout out my man, Daryl Adams, Diesel um, from the group Basic Black. Diesel was another um, tremendous, amazing vocalist. Um, and he just, he just passed away recently, but Diesel used to be my roommate for a while. And like I said, tremendous vocalist, tremendous vocalist. Diesel from Basic Black, 911. And I know that he did work with Justin uh, singing yeah, for he him. On backgrounds with Justin Timberlake, a lot of Justin Timberlake stuff he worked on. So. Mm -hmm. so besides the book, what other projects you have right now that you can speak of that's uh, out in the air? Well, out in the air, um, I actually, I, I, like like I say, I've been working in the entertainment business for loosely since I since I left Future, and right now I I produce a weekly television show that comes on here in the Hampton Roads area every Saturday and Saturday night on WSKY Channel Four called BME Presents. It's an entertainment variety show, and um, in addition to that, I have two films that I've recently finished. Um, one is an urban, a urban drama called The Towel Man. And the other one is a coming of age story called Cutting Heads. And the, my final and, mo and, last, and last project that could be actually tied into the book Don't Leave is Confessions of a Bodyguard, the story of Tony Sifu Watts. And I just finished the documentary um, right now, we, I'm trying to get some licensing from for some of the video clips that we're using in the documentary. I want to, you know, release it without without issues or what, without any problems or anything. So, once I get the licensing for the video clips, um, you can look forward to that. Confessions of a Bodyguard. I told the story of Tony Sifu Watts, and that tells about his story as a uh, growing up, how he came into contact with Teddy and Gene Griffin how he moved into Virginia, all the way up to him leaving Teddy and going to work for DMX, so, and what he's doing now with his life, so it's a, that's going to be a great a great documentary to check out, but in the meantime, and in between time, you can find mine on Amazon. <laughs> right here. Now, will the book eventually be in ebook form? The book is actually in ebook form, and it's in um, print version, and, and I, um, I had an idea that I want to pull off an audio version. See, I've, I've, I've listened to some of the new Black Street stuff. I'm still cool with most of the guys, in, with all of the guys in Black Street. I'm still cool with all the black guys in Black Street. And I was in the studio uh, a month ago. They got a new producer named Jay hot is Mucho's nephew, named Jay hot Scott. The boy is on fire. Lord have mercy, he's on fire. He does the talk box, the talk box thing like Teddy does, he does. And the music is crazy. And the new album is amazing. So that's why I asked you what you think about the Stephen Lucas No Diggity. Because mm. if you like that, you're going to love what you're about to hear from, from the new Black Street, from Black Street as it is now. And the Black Street as it is now is Chauncey, Dave, excuse me, Chauncey, Eric, Levi, and Mark. Okay. So those are the big voices from Black Street, with the exception of Dave um, and, and the work he did with um, Before I Let You Go and, and the album that he was on. 
you got all the original voices from Black Street, and that's a and they got a happening project, and it's not it's relative it's relative to their market. It's very good, very good stuff. Okay, we're definitely looking forward to the new Black Street project when it drops. And hey, fellas, if you guys want to come on beyond the album cover, holla at your boy. You guys got a spot. I'm, I'm putting it out there right now. So before we wrap this interview, do you have any shout outs you want to give and also plug your social media? Uh, my social media uh, is P-Town Brown on Instagram, VA Tony Brown on Facebook. Um, I like to shout out everybody who bought a copy of the book, everybody who's thinking about buying a copy book, and everybody who's listed in the book. I had some people that I wrote about in the book that actually called me and thanked me for how I portrayed them in the book and, and reminisce about the back in the days and actually cry on the phone, tears of joy, just thinking about, you know, how they've evolved since those days. So it's a good read. I think you'll enjoy it. I know you'll enjoy it. It's called Don't Leave, Eight Years of Working with Teddy Riley, Black Street, and Future Recording Studios. And it's available on Amazon, an ebook and paperback version. And I'm working on an audio, an audio book surprise version, if I could pull it off. I don't want to say nothing about it yet, but I gave you a hint already. So. Mm -hmm. so we're definitely looking forward to all of that. Go get the book. It's in print, in e-form, great read. And like LeVar Burton said, you don't have to take my word for it. And you can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover or the website beyond the album cover wordpress.com. Ladies and gentlemen, author of the book, Don't Leave, Eight years working with Teddy Riley, Blackstreet, and Future Recording Studios. Mr. Jack of all trades, master of none, 757's finest, Mr. Tony Brown. Tony, thank hey, you man. for coming thank out to be on the album cover. Thank you for having me, man. And like I love the I love the title because so much happens beyond the album cover. Yes, sir. I appreciate you. You got an open spot to come back anytime. Thank you. All right.